So Money episode 1002, Farnoosh Amiri, Iranian-American journalist. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. A number of men in full SWAT uniforms kind of surrounded the corners of my bed and my mom was standing in the doorway and they were like, get up, go downstairs. It was kind of those moments where you don't really say or do anything. You just know that in that moment as a marginalized community, as a person of color, you just follow instructions. As you probably know, I'm a first-generation Iranian-American, and so the beginning of this year was a time filled with worry. You know, we'd learned that our president had ordered the assassination of Iran's General Soleimani, the leader of the foreign wing of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard, and that raised what was already heightened tensions between Iran and the U.S., and like a lot of us, I was really scared, really scared about a war erupting and the probability of more lives being sacrificed over something that honestly I don't think can be solved on the battlefield. And then subsequent to this, we had Iran admitting to accidentally taking down the Ukrainian jetliner where 176 people on board perished. So in its aftermath, here I am, I have this financial podcast and I thought, well, what could I share here that was of relevance to us? I recently came across an NPR interview with Farnoosh Amiri. She is an Iran-born U.S. citizen, and I realized she'd make a great guest. You know, Farnoosh came here when her family was five years old. She experienced something pretty traumatic in those early years that you just heard a clip of. But I think the bigger takeaways from our conversation that you'll hear now are her immigrant experiences, lessons both unique and universal, her life today as a financially independent millennial living in New York City, and how she is, despite some challenges, creating a so money life for herself in the context of all that is happening between the two countries that she knows and loves. Here's Farnoosh Amiri. Farnoosh Amiri, welcome to So Money. Hi, thanks for having me. I don't just have you on the podcast because we share a name, <laughs> but have you ever met another Farnoosh, by the way, or Farnoosh, as our parents would say? I have not. I know they are, there's like a guy out there also in LA named Farnish, but I've never met him. So this is quite a day for me. I didn't know that men could have our name until I was much older. I met a Farnoosh who was a a man from England. He actually had a YouTube video that went viral. There's been another Farnoosh on this show, Farnoosh Brock, who is a business leader, business expert. She's also a yoga enthusiast. People think I am her sometimes when I go to conferences, I'm wearing the Farnoosh name tag and they're like, oh, I love your your yoga videos. (laughs) No one has confused me for anyone yet. So I think that's, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I I admire you so much. I wouldn't mind if people confused me with you. You're so brave. And I first learned about you a short while ago, earlier this year in January, I was listening to NPR. My husband actually sent me the clip and he said, you got to listen to this, not just because this woman shares your name, but you have to listen to her incredible, her incredible story. So you went on national public radio to talk about something that you never talked about in your entire life, an episode 
uh, that you and your family experienced many years ago while living at home in Orange County, California. We should mention that both of your parents are Iranian, born in Iran. You also born in Iran. You moved here. You and your family immigrated here with your brother at age five. In 2005, a very scary morning at your house. You woke up, you came downstairs. Tell us what did you see and what did you experience? Yeah, started it started really early. It was around 5 a.m., 6 a.m. It was still dark outside. And a number of men in full SWAT uniforms kind of surrounded the corners of my bed. And my mom was standing in the doorway and they were like, get up, go downstairs. It was kind of those moments where you don't really say or do anything. You just know that in that moment, as a marginalized community, as a person of color, you just follow instructions. So I went down the stairs and my mom and my brother um, followed behind and we were told to sit on this couch. We didn't have much furniture in the house because we had just moved in and my dad was already sitting there. And there was uh, like, I think, six, seven other men around every corner of the house. And uh, my dad was handcuffed. So that was kind of the first thing I saw. And then from there, it was a six, seven hour raid of our home. Unbelievable. So was there anything that you remember communicated to you, to your family, What, why they were there? That's got to be so scary, right? These strange men in uniform camping out at your house. What else do you remember? So nothing was communicated. I knew that this wasn't random and these weren't people from the street. I knew that this had something to do with like a larger um, law enforcement agency in America. I did not know who they were um, or specifically what they were looking for, but they just, they didn't speak to us much when they did. It was to tell us to stand up or sit down or leave the house or not say anything. So any sort of communication about what they were looking for or if they had a warrant or anything was not communicated with us. So it was a very confusing and scary couple hours. Yes. And again, this is 2005, right? So soon after 9-11, Iran is part of the axis of evil. As our president at the time announced, we're at war with Iraq. And I know personally, my family, my friends, definitely experienced various levels of aggression during that period who my friends who my family and friends Iranian or anyone from the Middle East anyone who had brown skin frankly there was a lot of fear at the time a lot of ignorance your family never talked about this not even amongst each other really they didn't talk about this with friends why was it mostly fear I think it was a mixture of things I think it was fear I think it was shame I think it was not knowing what had happened um a lot of the times when something horrible happens, I think there's a lot of a lot of time there's closure or there's a conversation or there's a grieving process or there's something. But with this, it was kind of like we actually didn't have any proof that this happened to us except our memories, which is hence why the, the essay is called The Day That Never Happened, because for all of us, we kind of just unconsciously repress that memory for around close to 15 years. Earlier this year, you chose to share your story bravely with NPR. Why did you decide to do that and why now? Yeah, so I had actually been working with an editor at um, NPR's Code Switch, which I felt like was the perfect place to to go and publish this essay and to kind of break the silence for the first time. And um, it was a very cathartic and therapeutic experience of discussing it and going through how to best 
talk about this as a journalist, you're never supposed to make the story about yourself. And I'm very uncomfortable with writing about myself or talking about myself publicly. Um, and I've kind of conditioned myself to, to take myself out of the story. So this was very difficult, and especially with something so raw and so private and personal, um, especially in the Iranian American community, we're very much tight lipped about stuff like this. Um, for fear of retaliation or fear of public, uh, public shaming or, or just any sort of vulnerability that is shown is, is not really seen as a positive thing in our community. So this was very hard to do, but NPR and Code Switch felt like the perfect place to do it. And honestly, the response has been amazing. I so admire you for doing this. And I know that on the interview, you mentioned your family was not in love with the idea of you going on a national platform and sharing this story once and for all, but there was no stopping you. So what has been, what has been their feedback since? I think in the beginning, I'm more of a do now ask for forgiveness later kind of girl. So I think I, it was kind of, it felt for me a tough love type of thing to tell, to do, to take the story that I felt was in parts my story, but also obviously they were huge characters and I wanted them to be okay with it. So I made sure that they were, everything was accurate because obviously this had happened when I was 12 years old and, and a lot has changed since then. And your memory of, of traumatic moments are sometimes not as accurate as you think it is. So I wanted to make sure that everyone felt that they were being represented, that their feelings, even to the point that the details of like, were you actually wearing pajamas? Did you say this one thing? Like I wanted, as a journalist, wanted to fact check my, my own story. But they definitely had a very good response. My dad has been playing the NPR piece at family parties that he's been going to. And um, he's very proud sharing it on Facebook. Uh, yeah, I think everyone feels like for the first time that we have words to just words to share about this experience. So it feels good. Your family moved here when you were five. My family moved here uh, back in the late 70s and I was born here. My mom was very pregnant when they came here. And the plan was actually to go back to the state, to Iran and raise their family. But as it happened, it was the revolution. There was a lot of turmoil back in their country and all signs were pointing to stay put. <laughs> don't, don't make any, don't move back yet. Uh, but then 40 years later, here we are. And so I want to learn a little bit more about what was your family's motivation for moving here? And, and what can you remember? What do you remember about your first five years in Iran? I was very, very lucky to have lived in Iran and was born in Iran and have five years of, of truly just amazing and and memorable experiences and I, I cannot say anything bad about my time there and I have actually go until 2015 I would go back every single summer so for me Iran is still a place that has all my family lives there I have barely any family here except my mom my dad and my brother so it, it, it's a very special place for me and those first five years I think because I wasn't forced to wear the hijab and because I had just a very privileged upbringing, it was an amazing time in my life. Moving to the U.S., I think before 9-11 is a very different experience than moving to the U.S. after 9-11 as an Iranian or as any sort of um, Middle Eastern family. But for me, I, I was a citizen before I came here because of my dad. My dad has been a citizen of the U.S. since he was 17, so we did not have to go through the insane and really arduous process of becoming a U.S. citizen that a lot of Iranians face now. So I know that I was very privileged in that. And we moved 
to Southern California and I, it was, it was very much of a class difference. Um, we were living very well and privileged in Iran. And when we moved to the U.S., we had um, nothing. So my dad started to work at Denny's and he worked from like 11 p.m. at night to 5 a.m. And he didn't speak English. So he kind of learned everything on the job and provided for us. And it was a, it was still, even though it was quite a stark difference from our life in Iran, it was some of the best years of my life was the first few years when we moved to the U.S. Wow, that's really humbling, you know, to come here and have to start over like that. If they had to do it again, would your family come to the U.S.? You think that they're happy with their choice? I think they would. I think I think a lot of people, similarly to how maybe Iranian Americans have a relationship with the U.S., I think a lot of our parents and our grandparents who left Iran have a very complicated relationship with Iran because their view. And their understanding of the country is very different than what it is now. And I think the separation of Iran and the culture and the traditions and the family and the food and all of that versus the relationship that Iranians, um, older Iranians have with the government is very different. And I think my parents, as much as they miss Iran, as much as they're, they fell in love there, they had kids there, their whole families are there. Uh, I think life in Iran seems more and more impossible every day. And I think we're very lucky to have been able to come here when we did and have the life that we have. Does your family talk often about, especially now with all the tensions, right, between the U.S. and Iran, do they ever talk about a day, a, a hope for a day where there is peace or at least not as much anguish and, and not even so much between the U.S. and Iran, but in Iran, you know, there's so much disparity between the leadership and the people, the leadership being these very strict, very sort of antiquated leaders who do not reflect the opinions and the values of the populace, much like I would say in America, but on a very different scale, of course, there uh, so many freedoms have been taken away from the Iranian people. Are there, are your parents hopeful of, of things going back to the way they used to be in Iran? I think my family and I think a lot of my family in Iran, when I talk to them about the future, I think everyone's kind of come and I, and I obviously can only speak for my family because I think one mistake that is really often made in media when reporting on Iran or talking about Iran is that looking through it, looking at the country through a monolithic view. And I think that's really dangerous to do to any country, but specifically Iran with more than 80 million people. And there's so many different religious beliefs. There's so many different socioeconomics. I think that for my parents, I think they've kind of given up on the idea of Iran ever becoming what they grew up with it being. I think because there doesn't seem to be any sort of plan B for Iran um, in comparison to the current government, I think a lot of people are just honestly trying to survive. That's how my family, what my family in Iran is trying to do. And I know so many others are trying to do. And I think it's kind of, we don't really have any other choice. Not everyone was privileged like my family was to be able to leave um, when they did. So I think that's kind of the view that my family has. What was the most important financial principle that your family taught you? For me, I know watching my parents build a life here from scratch was such a an impactful experience. And I think that's true of a lot of immigrants, right? A lot of children of immigrants, whether mm -hmm. you come from Iran or anywhere, to see your family 
start from the ground level and try to assimilate and not just even assimilate, really. Immigrants are ambitious, right? They want to achieve that quote unquote American dream. Is there any financial mm-hmm. wisdom that your family bestowed upon you, if, even if it was just by watching them? I think the lessons I've learned from my family is to never be dependent on anyone else but yourself financially. I, even though I, I had a pretty privileged upbringing, my dad made me and my brother get jobs when we were really young. And I was 16 and I was in high school and I was working. And I think I've always kind of had this idea that I want to be financially dependent. And even, even in situations where I didn't have to be. And I think that that's had a huge impact on my ability to live in New York, my ability to move away from home, which is something not a lot of um, Iranian Americans do, especially in Orange County. A lot of my friends still live either at home or they live nearby home. And I, I definitely wanted a life that was very different than um, the one that I could have in Orange County. So I knew that I had to be financially dependent. And and that was something that my dad really bestowed on me in a young age. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that, this uh, insistence upon financial independence. My mm-hmm. mom said to me when I was like 19 in college, she said, if you ever get into debt, don't let me know because I'm not ba- <laughs> I'm not bailing you out. I was like, okay, better get rid of that credit card debt. Seriously, it helped. And so now as you are in New York City, you're working as a journalist, how are you building your financial life? Do you think about, you know, building wealth and and if so, what are you practicing? I think something that I have kind of struggled with and, and I think it's because of this idea that not a lot of immigrant families are raised with a kind of practical financial skills or idea of what how much things cost and of, of, of college and grad school and, and savings and stuff. I, I unfortunately wasn't given as the tools that I probably should have been given to be able to be prepared for the burden that is student loans and this idea of saving and having a foundation. So I kind of had to create those on my own. And I think things that I'm doing now is is kind of living with the means that I have and not beyond that. And I think that's, that's if you know anything about Iranian Americans, we tend to live way beyond our means, mostly for this idea to show luxury and exuberance to the outside communities and to kind of really impress our friends and impress our family and kind of show that we have all this. And I think that's something that I cannot relate with at all. And I think that makes me very different than my family and the community that I grew up with in Orange County is this idea of even if you don't have it, spending it as if you do or figuring it or putting it on credit cards or loans. And stuff. And I think that's something I'm very proud of that I don't have that quality. But it's, but it was difficult to break out from that because that was a huge part of my upbringing. I hear that. And you know, now you're living on the East Coast. You've have you have experiences from both coasts now. And I have a theory that there is a difference in financial mentality between West Coast Iranians and East Coast Iranians. And I could be wrong, but I never grew up with this insistence upon having flashy things. My parents definitely liked the nicer things, but they always would save up to buy those things. We never really had credit card debt. 
Now, I'm not saying that people on the West Coast have credit card debt, but there's just a lot more, far bigger insistence upon having the big house, the brand new nose, <laughs> the, you know, all the fancy stuff, the designer this, the designer that. I mean, there's a real housewives of Orange County. So it's not just limited to the Iranian community. It's it's a whole culture out there on the in the Los Angeles area. And now that you are living on the East Coast and you have this West Coast past, do you notice the difference? Oh, definitely. And I think that, I think that even more to get more specific, I, I lived in Northern California. I went to school in San Francisco. It's not like that there. It's a very specific Southern California, LA, Orange County kind of vibe that they have. And it's very different than let's say like Massachusetts Iranians or DC Iranians or New York Iranians, very completely different set of priorities and interests and how they want to present themselves. So I think it's been quite a culture shock to move here and, and probably be surrounded by Iranians that make probably a lot more money than um, some of my family friends, but it doesn't show in, in a very in-your-face type of way. And I think that's been really interesting as like an anthropological view to kind of take that in. Yeah, I'm not going to try to dissect it any further than just saying, here's what I observe. Very interesting that you also experience the same thing. Okay, talking even more about money, I heard heard you say something about student loans. I know that you're a journalist. So just wondering how you're doing for yourself now. How would you rate you know, your financial life? And, and, and is there anything that you're particularly proud of? Have you experienced a so money moment? Yeah, I think if anyone knows anything about journalism, you don't get into it for the money. Definitely, you do not get into this this business for the money or the stability. It's truly for the public service that you feel like you're doing and the work. So I definitely would have never been money motivated, which I see as both a blessing and a curse. I always thought I'd rather if I spend 40 hours a week, eight hours a day at a job that if I made so much money and was so financially comfortable, but if I hated it, that would be so much worse than truly working at a job that, and I may be making ends meet, but I can go to bed at night, happy with what I'm doing and proud of the work. So I think my ability to be able to make my life in New York possible and living, being able to have an apartment that I am proud of, being able to travel, being able to go out with friends. I think those that is a financial win, especially in journalism and more, more specifically journalism in New York. So I think that's been a financial win. Definitely student loans are a real thing. And I think it's important to for people to talk about it and to talk about the fact that some people have been very privileged and the reason that they're able to have the kind of life that they have is that they were able to get out of school or grad school without those things. I, I loved my education both in undergrad and my master's at NYU. I have no regrets with my student loans and I know they will eventually get paid off. But if I think if I could give advice to someone else is kind of the same idea of the Persian upbringing is live within your means, take out the loans that you can pay off and don't do anything beyond that. Yeah. To give you a lot of credit, I know starting out in New York as a journalist, it's uh, it's great. It's an amazing experience, but financially, yeah, you really have to stretch every dollar. So now has this recent interview with NPR inspired you to maybe expand your coverage? So maybe you're traveling more, becoming a Middle Eastern correspondent, a foreign correspondent. What do you like to cover? 
actually, that is the ideal goal, career goal, is to be able to transition into working in the Middle East and working out in the field. I'm um, currently at the Associated Press, where I handle mostly domestic news, more specifically in the East, which is we cover 10 states and the desk that I'm on. But I'm able to help out with a lot of um, international coverage and translating a lot of stuff in Farsi. So that's kind of the end goal is to be able to go and cover Iran specifically because of my interest in kind of bridging the gap of what American audiences or global audiences know about Iran and how reporting on that can kind of illuminate the nuances of that country and break past this idea that the only narratives about it are the nuclear deal or the tensions between U.S. and Iran and how there is so much more. And it's important to have context when reporting on it. So if you were to go live on TV right now on a roundtable, one of you know maybe 20 talking heads as it is, as they cover on cable news, the day's top headlines, if you only had one minute and you really wanted to set the record straight and share with the American audience something about Iran that you feel is underreported, misunderstood, not factual, what would it be? You know, something that would be, you think, helpful to us as we try to just better understand what's happening. Yeah. So I think we what I would provide on that table that would might be different than others is a more as a, as a journalist and as a reporter is kind of giving a contextual view instead of my opinion about things. I think through my time um, reporting about Iran or um, obviously reading a lot of the reports that my colleagues do from the region and around the region, I think the most important thing, and I think they will agree with this, is what I mentioned before is not looking at Iran through a monolithic view. There are people who, um, and I think there's been great stories done about this, but I think it should be discussed more, is there are people who are angry at the U.S.'s ordering of the assassination of General Soleimani, but also angry at their government um, for the shooting down the airliner that had 176 on board. And I think that nuance is really important. And I think a lot of the times people don't look at Iran with a varying of shades and kind of put one sort of narrative on the 80 million plus population. I think if I could say one thing is, is look at the country with more nuance and, and it's much more complex than I think a lot of us think it is. Very well said. Farnoosh Amiri, thank you for joining me and sharing your brave story. I didn't realize before the interview that you are based in New York. So you and I need to go have a choi. Yes, That's do. Persian tea. Uh, very good. soon. <laughs> a delight to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Farnoosh for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter at Farnoosh Amiri. She spells Farnoosh not with two O's like I do, but with an O and a U in the middle. And she's also on Instagram at Farnoosh Amiri NYC. You can share the clip at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, leave me a question for our Friday episodes. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. So money.